1: Welcome to episode 459 with my guest, Nick H. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, past and present, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. I am not a therapist, and this is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It is meant to be a substitute for going out and bowling and just having a good time and eating some finger sandwiches. Where did that come from? Uh, a couple of notes before we get to the interview, uh, actually a couple of surveys and then the interview with Nick. Uh, this episode, interestingly enough, when I picked it to uh, to air this week it didn't it wasn't even intentional that when i recorded this with nick a few months ago this was on the heels of the last rash of wildfires in california and a lot of what we talk about is how he as a social worker uh, supported people who lost their homes in the in the wildfire so uh, i suppose it uh, is, is quite fitting also, I make a reference to a past episode with uh, my guest Clint Malarchuk, who was an NHL goalie. And that episode is in uh, part of the back catalog that is not available. But I'm hoping that by the new year, a lot of the back catalog, a lot more of the back catalog will be available for free. Something also uh, interesting I noticed. Recording with Nick, I don't know if it's interesting as much as annoying, but it, there are so many planes flying overhead, and I wonder if when we recorded it, that were those were planes that were trying to put the fires out. And then we have a nice, a nice neighbor's horn going off. So enjoy that. Let's get to a couple of surveys this is from the love survey filled up by a woman who calls herself pale blue moon and she writes i love sitting with a hot cup of coffee on a fall morning bundled up under a throw on my couch inside with the room temperature chilly watching the sun come up if i could ever get up early enough to watch the sun come up i bet that is awesome mm that sounds so good I love when it's cold outside or it's raining inside and you're inside and you're warm and you're protected and you don't have anything pressing and you can just sit there and feel like you're in a nest. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Maggie and she writes, when I was a teenager, my parents said they would take our whole family to Disneyland for a vacation, something we'd been begging them to do, but they would only take us if we lost a specific amount of weight, they had determined we needed to lose before a certain deadline, holy fuck. Two of my siblings were quite athletic already, so they were told they only needed to lose five pounds. Oh, this is so fucked up. My sister and I were not athletic, And could, of course, stand to lose some weight, but were by no means jeopardizing our health. We were told we had to lose 15 and 20 pounds, respectively. If we didn't lose the weight by the chosen deadline, we could either stay home or pay for the cost of the hotel and park ticket ourselves. I was around 17 at the time and the oldest, so all my siblings were younger. The deadline came, and although I really did try, I could not lose the required 20 pounds. The rest of my siblings managed to do it, and the trip was on. Of course, I wanted to go and spend time with my family. Of course, you want to go. After being shamed, who doesn't want to go to the happiest place on earth? And it's now called the thinnest place on earth. So I scrambled to take whatever little jobs I could in the remaining weeks, paid my dues, and went. I had always thought this incident was a little excessive but assumed I was just being too sensitive and it wasn't that abnormal. I just told my therapist this story a couple of weeks ago. She was absolutely shocked. It's been 20 years since this incident and I never mentioned it because I thought this was a fairly common thing for parents to do, at least for mine it was. I never even realized how extreme it was until I said it out loud and saw the expression on someone else's face. Wow, that that is, I would love to meet your parents and I would hate to meet your parents. There is something so satisfying about seeing someone's reaction when you share something that you think might be a big deal, but you're not sure. I shared something one time in a support group meeting and You know, I thought it was kind of fucked up what I shared, but I I wasn't sure if it was that bad. And the room gasped, and it was so validating. Because a whole room isn't going to lie and gasp at the same time. You know, if I were to tell one person the mean part, and, and, and they were to react with sympathy and validation, the mean part of my brain... Oh yeah, up right here, mean DJ voice, rocking the Quad Cities and now that little bit of Bachman Turner Overdrive. Stop listening to this shit podcast by Paul Gilbert. Haven't done mean DJ voice in a while. My the mean part of my brain, if somebody validated me, could say, "Well, they're just being nice to you." But when an entire room gasps, you know that that is a good feeling. This is a love filled out by a guy who calls himself chemo boy. And he writes, I'm seven months sober. I love climbing into the shower in the morning, knowing that I'm only washing off the sweat from sleep, not booze. That's pretty awesome. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air, Pulitzer Prize finalist and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. Okay, picture
0: this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: One of our sponsors for today is uh, betterhelp.com if you have never tried online therapy i'm a big fan of it uh, i love my therapist donna she helps me so so much and i love not having to leave my house to do it i love doing video uh, therapy and uh if you're interested go to betterhelp.com slash mental make sure you include the slash mental part and then fill out a questionnaire and you'll get matched with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, it's right for you and you need to be over 18. Oh, something else I always forget to mention is one of the ways that you can help this podcast, and we do need help, and I personally need lots of help. One of the ways you can help the podcast is uh, by subscribing. It doesn't cost you anything and it... uh helps attract advertisers Uh, the more popular the podcast is the more it attracts advertisers and you can also um, go to Apple Podcasts and uh, give us a review hopefully it'll be a nice review and uh, say something nice about it so there you go and you can also financially you can become a monthly donor through PayPal or Patreon and all those links are uh, under the show notes for, for episodes But, uh, it would, it would really be, if you get a lot out of this podcast or anything out of this podcast, I would really greatly appreciate it if, uh, if you would do any of those things. All right. Uh, and then finally, this is an awful some moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Brown Spotted Banana. And, uh, I'm just going to condense it a little bit. She, she has a desk job that she really doesn't like. She applied for another job that she was hoping to get and, um, she got a letter in the mail, and she opened it, and it started off with, We regret to inform you. And she sighed. Uh, now I'm starting in her words. Uh, I read it, and I sighed. I started to feel really sorry for myself, and my boyfriend went right into problem-solving mode. I told him, I love you and appreciate what you're trying to do, but I just want to feel sad right now. He then proceeded to sit on the other side of the room. I felt so alone and so hopeless about the job search. I started to cry and asked and asked uh, that he bring me the tissues. He brought me the toilet paper roll from the bathroom. I said the tissues are in the closet and he said, annoyed, just fucking use these. So now I'm crying even harder because he's choosing to be a jerk at the worst possible time. We bicker for a moment and I go to the bathroom so I can cry in peace. I sit on the toilet, have a cry, and decide to pee while I'm there. My face is red and puffy, my pants are down to my ankles, and I'm gently sobbing. I go to wipe, and that's when I remember that the toilet paper is sitting in the living room. Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's
0: scared, scared, and and we're we're just just all all in this together. together. There was no joy. Overeating.
1: Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out.
0: Physically, I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent, rudderless, they were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, There's going to be a sack of the whole Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, Hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm out. You have to like fantasize about the person I'm with. Oh am going stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to here i'm gonna help you one day people are gonna love you for that
1: it takes a lot of work to heal it's
0: hard being a weird kid
1: sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it you will just never see what you're not
0: looking for i didn't know how to break up with him so i just transferred schools
1: (laughs) i'm here with nick h who is a social worker and we met previously we talked about stuff that we might discuss uh, if you come on the podcast. And then we were talking before we started recording about uh, you working with some of the people affected by the fires recently. And I thought, wow, that would be an interesting thing to talk about. So fuck your life. Let's (laughs) talk about other people. Much more appropriate. I'm used to doing that. (laughs) Uh, what, what What would you like to know? Um just tell me some stories from the from the experience uh so we can be a kind of a fly on the wall and sure. what it's like to have been those people and what are the things that they are struggling with what are how do those traumas present themselves and what do you as a social worker do to try to help them if anything
2: yeah so i think there was two different locations where people were were going immediately after the fire um, the county responds with loads of support. You know, obviously, lots of roads were closed. There's a lot of confusion, chaos. I mean, we heard stories: people taking six hours to get from like Doom to Santa Monica, um, point Doom to Santa Monica,
1: which is like five, six miles.
2: Yeah, so, something just not a lot of yeah. uh, a distance, and just you know, you see the photos of massive flames and packed. Uh,
1: Highway One, and so were these people in fear for their lives
2: because it was it was packed at, at that point. Um, I mean, I don't want to speculate too much, but uh, I think there was mass evacuations for a, a large portion of of Malibu. Uh, if I recall correctly, it was the entire city of Malibu. So just really uh, terrifying. Real, a lot going on. A lot of worried people. Um, understandably, I think I'd be in the same place too. Um, so there was, there was two places that people would go if they didn't have other, if they didn't have other housing arrangements. There was a Red Cross shelter uh, set up at uh, Palisades High and another one, I think, at Pierce College. And so the local county areas were dispatched there to essentially support um, the Red Cross's efforts um, to uh, just check in with people, see how they're doing, make small talk. And I've, And when I was at that location, I found it to be tremendously valuable to be consistent. you know I mean, if you think about trauma, if you think about loss, you know one of the things that um, personally I would want in that time is is uh, consistency. Mm-hmm. So having people seeing the same person over and over, not having to retell your stories, which, as we know, can be yeah. really kind of re-experiencing trauma.
1: I'm, I'm annoyed when I have to fill out the doctor's form <laughs> more than once since childhood. <laughs> you would you would not be alone in that bucket. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think people often are. And that's one of the hesitations to seeking mental health is, what, I'm going to tell another person? I'm going to have to go through all this again? Like, what is this person going to do?
1: Right. Yeah. The, the anxiety of, is this person going to minimize what happened to me or, you know, whatever, whatever the fears are. And then, I suppose, having to relive that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, at a
2: minimum, right? Just right. getting in the door to try to sit with somebody in a chair or a couch, whatever it might be. You have to go through all these things. You have to do intake appointments. So it was nice, I think, um, that there was such a, a quick response, that w- there was such a dedicated response for these people. Now, obviously, you know, not everybody, there was a lot of people that had family support, social supports that really opened our arms. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of beautiful things that were being donated and supports in that regard. So not everybody were were going to the shelters, but for those that were, we were trying to be a, a support. Um, yeah, like a, talking about resources, referrals, you know, mm-hmm. there's definitely people that were living on the streets up there. So seeing what we can do along with other agencies to help support them.
1: So give me an example, obviously, you know, you don't want to share anything that identifies somebody, uh, you want to protect their privacy, but as far as things you can share that aren't identifiable about somebody in particular, can you give us any, any stories of
2: definitely, I I think one of the things that I was most struck with, um, you know, just had to do with somebody who'd been there since eighties, nineties. Right. And kind of the general lifestyle that is Malibu, right? Mm-hmm. So th- this uh, individual was really just talking about like, Oh man, you know, there was, there was 93, there was 94, there was 97, there was 2003, there was 2004. I was really looking for y'all in 2007 and you weren't there. I never got a chance to talk to you. And so it just, they had so,
1: experienced fires all of those years.
2: I mean, I, I could be misquoting as far yes. as the exact years, but that was kind of the sentiment that yeah. this is this is a part of the life right. of that community, of, of that area. Um, you know, so I was just really struck by not only the, the cumulative nature of trauma and, and loss, but also how, like, the present experience can really dig up the past, can really dig up um, historical experiences when when we needed or when we wanted to connect to somebody. um, And we missed out on that.
1: Did you ever ever listen to the episode we did with Clint Malarchuk, the NHL goalie who almost died, a skate cut his uh, jugular open or his carotid? I I can't remember which one, but I mean, there's footage of it. It's it's to people that follow the NHL. It's an unforgettable moment. And um, he came within inches of, uh, bleeding out and he just kind of buried it. You know, he was a farm boy from Canada, didn't really ever deal with it emotionally. And then uh, a couple of years after he was out of the NHL, a similar thing happened to another skater who fortunately did not die, but just watching it on the TV brought up all of the trauma and sent him into a, such a spiral that he, uh, tried to commit suicide, shot himself in the head. Ugh. The bullet ricocheted around his head, did not kill him, didn't even injure his brain, and it resides just above his eye To today. It, it's, it's in the back catalog, but I, I couldn't not mention that when you talk about things bringing up, things from the past, and suddenly you're experiencing them as if you're in it or, you know, shortly the aftermath after it. I imagine. I'm not a therapist or psychologist.
2: Well, you're doing a heck of a job on the show. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean, just to emphasize your point, I mean, I think... um, you know that's the thing about trauma, like the way that our society is, the way that our culture is. It's like suck it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know this rugged individualism that, that we kind of have, but yet, like um, as well as kind of the the mantra of if it doesn't hurt you, it only makes you stronger. Right? Well, that may be true, but trauma, uh, as we know, is cumulative. Right. So there's this, what they call the small t trauma, which is cumulative trauma, as well as the big T trauma, which is these big events that we have, have in our lives. And so we never necessarily know when we're going to hit that tipping point, if you will. And then when you, to me, when I think of trauma, when I think of these experiences, I also think about kind of the way that masculinity for both genders, uh, hypermasculinity is really portrayed within the culture as well. So we have. You know, I, I forget where I read it, but in grad school, this author pinpointed hypermasculinity as essentially uh, physical prowess, you know, identity, physical strength, um, the way that we present ourselves, roles, all these sorts of things, as well as tolerance of pain, right? So it that sort of thing really harkens back to the whole tolerance of pain, like, just give me more, I can take another. You know, substance abuse, I think you have a lot of that too. Just give me another, I'm the guy that can drink, you know, 20 beers with no problem. I don't need any help. So a lot of these things are in movement and um there's a real momentum there that you're fighting when you actually reach out for help and sit yeah. down and have an honest conversation.
1: Yeah. Vulnerability is viewed as weak. And to me, vulnerability is one of the bravest things you can do because, totally agree. you know, vulnerability in many ways is, you know, it's the, the fight at the okay corral between you and your demons. And, you know, what is braver than walking out those saloon doors to face what, scares the fuck out of you, which existentially terrifies you that you in your central nervous system feel might destroy you completely. That's, that's bravery to me. And asking for help has been so, so stigmatized. And it's, I I like to think of like a general who, if they were in a battle and they didn't have enough reinforcements Mm -hmm and they're getting their ass kicked, they would be a terrible general if they didn't call in for reinforcements. But for some reason, we just like to think, no, it's better to die by yourself Mm -hmm. than look like you might have a trembling lower lip.
2: (laughs) Completely. I couldn't couldn't agree more. It, It really is kind of like the tragedy. And even when you... The other part that's so hard is even when you do reach out... You're, it's, it's in these kind of uh, it can be in these controlled ways, right? Mm-hmm. Testing the waters. Yeah, and we have all these expectations and conditions for intimacy that we kind of put forth and gauntlet as we go through this process, and um, you know, and then we may run into a natural event which just really disappoints us, right, or frustrates us, irritates us, whatever the feeling might be. I guess I'm thinking, um, you know, uh, therapy can be really important. It can be a critical step. It can be a critical support, support groups, all these different tools, um, 12, 12 step, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Um, and just in my own experience, um, whether it's working with people that are living on the streets or, or even the private, uh, psychotherapy practice, you, you just, you run into peop- um, experiences where you hear these stories of trying to reach out, trying to get support, um, and just being let down or just being disappointed. So I think that can really be a part of the process. And I've, I've heard you talk on the podcast a lot about, you know, just keep trying. You know, even if you aren't met with the expectation that you're hoping for, there's tremendous value in your still reaching out.
1: Yeah, there, there's gold in the hills, man. Just keep, God, am I full of fucking horrible analogies today, but just keep swinging the pick. <laughs> you know, you just gotta keep doing it because you will, you will hit, hit pay dirt, uh, eventually. And, uh, you know, I like that you brought up the thing about controlled ways of asking for help. You know, I, I think of the example of the person who vaguely brings up a conversation, mm-hmm. you know, a topic in a conversation, and wants the other person to kind of mind-read and ask them, did this happen to you, or et cetera, et cetera, and it doesn't, and so that person thinks, well, nobody nobody cares. You know, or they bring it up, in a, you know, when a parent shuts them down and says, you know, suck it up and get over it, but I think that, you know, I'm sure you would agree that speaks more to the emotional illiteracy in our country or whatever term you want to use for it than it does to how much kindness is in the world.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, um, I think there can be, again, I think there's just a a lot of value in, in the effort of reaching out in the effort of trying, um, regardless of the, the outcome and how expected that might've been.
1: What are what are some tips for and I want to go back and hear some more uh stories if you have any of uh counseling people that went through the natural disaster traumas um what what are are there any tips you have for somebody that's afraid to ask for help and they don't know where to begin
2: I think there's a lot of ways of reaching out I think really kind of thinking about um, places that you feel comfortable, places that you feel safe, uh, people in in those places. It's always great. Um, in some of the suicide prevention trainings that that I do, it's oftentimes like you don't want to have a bunch of different plans. Just have a person that's in place that you envision being a support for you. Mm-hmm. and then have that be, the the plan, right? Your point person. There you go. Um, exactly. So I think similarly, you just kind of want to run it past people that you trust. Mm-hmm. The challenging part is that we don't all have loving, supportive, uh, compassionate people around us. Um, so you know, thinking about who that might be if you're in one of those situations is really important. There's plenty of of hotlines out there, warm talk lines, um, some wonderful. Online uh, resources that can be utilized uh, in LA County. There's 211, which mm-hmm. is a, a wonderful support for anyone who has questions, really, about any sort of
1: social services or resources. And and that can be in many towns. The 211, you you dial it. I think I think so. Does it have to be from a landline? Does anybody even have landlines anymore? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a bigger question than
1: I can respond to. I'm still using Morse code. I'm, (laughs) I'm waiting for it to make a comeback, but, uh, um, the, uh, the other thing that I, I think is important when you talk about getting help is letting go of what form you think that help should come in. So many people, for instance, will go to a rehab, but they don't want to do They don't want to follow the rules of the rehab um, because they can't envision how this would, that's the same brain that landed you in the rehab, second guessing their rules. And it's not to say there aren't bullshit rules or whatever, but it's a, it's a great exercise in, um, surrendering, having patience and open mindedness, Yeah. um, and so I just felt like I had to I had to chime that in there because I've seen people die that would not accept help if it didn't come in the form they wanted it to come in. Right.
2: I have as well. And uh, it's not an easy thing to watch. You're just kind of uh, witnessing this person continue to bump their head into the wall and you want to be supportive and at the same time... You, you're completely helpless to to really do anything.
1: It's yeah. It's it's like watching someone drown, and, and they're just complaining about the color of the life pr- preserver. You know, and you just it's it goes beyond reason. You know, is is there? What is that? Is it arrogance? Is it fear? Is it all of the above? Is that person in a traumatized state where they're that's their self-defense mode their survival mode i I don't you know it's hard to speculate because
2: every case can be so unique and specific no everybody's the
1: same nick (laughs) this interview is over
2: (laughs) yeah it's a i mean you know the the impact of you know thoughts on on mood and situations and certainty and people being aware of different things and people um you know, thinking that what is familiar is um, is good. People think that being comfortable is good, even if they're comfortable in a chaotic, disorderly, right. disorganized situation. People being fearful of uncertainty, the unknown, ambivalence. Um, there's so much here, you know.
1: Yeah, the comfort zone can can kill us. Can absolutely kill us. And it's so hard in recovery to begin to understand what is. Toxicity, where your body is telling you the truth, you are uncomfortable. Remove yourself from the situation, and what is a healthy stretching yeah. of your comfort zone to grow and to learn new tools? Yeah, it's impossible to see
2: the forest from the trees. I mean, at, at a certain point, especially when you take in the impact—if you're talking substance abuse, um, just of the impact of the drugs, right, and the substances, especially with a brain-changing substance like something like meth or what, um, you know, whatever it might be. Does math
1: affect the brain? <laughs> uh, I yes. know it affects
2: the teeth. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's, uh, it also, this, this sounds like medical questions. Though, yeah. Right? <laughs> Beyond my scope.
1: Um, I love, too, that somebody's car horn is, has waited all day until I'm recording now.
2: It's analogous to, to our lives. It really is. <laughs>
1: It's telling us to wrap this fucking thing up <laughs> and get out of here. Um, there was something, <laughs> perhaps the loudest noise in the year I've lived here. Is that your car? If it was, I was going to laugh. That is I, I, hilarious. I decided to check. Yeah. Someone's
2: missing their car.
1: Yeah. It's kind of becoming almost enjoyable now. <laughs> I'm just going to poke my head out and make sure it's not either of our cars.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: someone's off down the street with your car. <laughs> of course, all I had to do was get up and it stopped. Yeah, as soon as you're disturbed, <clears throat> it won. Yes, it won. It killed our flow. Um, you were talking about a lot of different things, but I, I know you also. Uh, we're interested in, as far as other stories from the yes. fires. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think in so just as far as to give you a heads up, as far as my view on it. Um, you know, I, essentially, I I thought of myself as a stranger. Um, as somebody, I didn't know anybody there. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what people were going through. So when I showed up, I just very quickly. Shook a few hands, said a, lo- a few hellos, smiled, um, and just tried to, if there was an an opportunity to talk with somebody, just start to have a conversation, and really just to be a be a human in that moment, and uh,
1: to see where I went. Right. And so you were just kind of wandering around the shelter, yeah. just introducing yourself to people. So it's it's not like. Somebody was like, "Okay, Nick, your next person is here to see you." No, not at all. It was
2: very informal, mm-hmm. which I think is really good. I think um, the county is is moving more towards that model, realizing that people aren't coming into a clinic setting for a, uh, you know, to sit in a chair or sit on a couch. A lot of people aren't making it in, right? Mm. So, how can we be more um, proactive? How can we be more thoughtful? strategic, if you will, about engaging people and trying to uh, find support. So they've they've just done, and obviously, you know, I'm speaking as a human, not as a representative at this point, but um, I think they've done a lot of wonderful ways of bringing in like peer support, um, having a lot more field-based staff, doing a lot more things like this. So that was kind of my mindset going in was just to really be a human first and and uh, see where that goes
1: that to me seems like the most inviting doorway for for people to, to open up because I think the fear for so many of us when we first reach out for help is that it's gonna be clinical and judgmenty. totally and we're gonna feel like an object that's just you know being perused like where is this thing broken <laughs>
2: You know, <laughs> it it hurts to even hear stuff like that. You know, I think, it, like as a as a clinician, like that's the last place I, I want to be is, um, in, elevated to some, you know, toxic, parentified, uh, godlike, judgmental figure entity that is using these. Um, you know, words that n- very few people understand and is just labeling and devaluing and diminishing uh, the person before me. Yeah. It's like even talking about it, it's it's disgusting that that happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are bad uh, therapists out there, just like there's bad plumbers and electricians. And um, what if I just listed like a thousand things please, just to make sure everybody understood the point I was making. <laughs> um share anything you you feel comfortable sharing that people shared with you to paint a better picture of what their experience was like um what they were thinking about what they were feeling in their bodies or what their thoughts were or what their struggle was in that moment yeah you know
2: i i in all honesty i don't think um I was trying to, I kind of went where I was allowed to go. Mm-hmm. And I think um, in a situation like that, you're really talking about acute like, um, acute stress disorder and trying not to develop symptoms of post-traumatic stress like a month down the road. Mm-hmm. Symptoms are very similar. So really just trying to be supportive to whatever somebody was talking about. Me personally, I, I know some of my colleagues um, who do wonderful work as well, may have had more of the kind of crisis counseling in the Mm -hmm. traditional role, but me personally, I just um, you know, people were I think you know, as as I imagine I would uh, just trying to stay pragmatic trying to say one thing at a time Um, not really ready to go into you know I lost my home right? I have nothing to go home to And so really just kind of working with whatever somebody was open to giving. And so oftentimes um, they would just, I got the sense that they just wanted to kind of be distracted Mm -hmm. or they just maybe wanted to feel a connection. They were just happy to see my face the next day. Uh, They were just happy to get a check in. Like, you know, how was, how was the evening? They were happy to get an acknowledgement. Like, gosh, it's gotta be tough to be around all these other people. Or, you know, there's, you're like a foot away from another person. Um, there's no mm-hmm. privacy. You know, that, it's got to be difficult. And just to have that ac- acknowledgement, um, I think was important. And then just the day-to-day stuff, like if I could help somebody with simple tasks, you know, I think, you know, I find myself in a lot of different hats um, and helping people with a lot of different things. So just being agile, being flexible, um, and just providing support, and definitely when there's opportunities to Provide a little psychological education, um, or maybe to ask a open-ended quen- uh, question to get a little bit deeper into the topic. I think that's good. But what you don't want to do in those kind of
1: situations is go straight for like the the trauma. Tell me about your mother. Is <laughs> you're is you're waving the smoke away from their face? <laughs> tell me, Tell me about Papa.
2: <laughs> you're, I wasn't sure if you were, you were talking to me directly. Or I worked on multiple levels. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, completely, yeah. I think, I think it can be really invasive, and it can feel overwhelming, and, and it can breed a lot of resentment. And so just being mindful of that and reminding them that these are the symptoms that you may experience. And there was a lot of great like handouts and, and fact, fact sheets. And what would some of those symptoms be? Ugh, now you're going to put me on the, uh, try to re- remember it. I mean, I think, you know, just agitation, fidgetiness, um, a lot of anxiety related, related symptoms,
1: um, depression.
2: Yeah. Depending on where someone, I think at that moment, anything, anything. kind of goes, yeah. I'd have to dig up the old DSM five mm-hmm. to, to be more specific. How but. about whimsy is whimsy in there? <laughs> yeah, it's what it, it's, Whim- as in, like whimsical. <laughs>
1: This is me trying to trying to inject humor. It's yeah, I, just a, I, 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 yeah. You may sure. experience bouts of whimsy, and you know it's not unusual uh, for somebody to uh, feel like a scoundrel. Two to three weeks, um, you may be irascible. You may be petulant. You may be many things that we rarely have words pointed <laughs> pointed that peter out. Man, how long have um, you
2: been at uh, dictionary.com? Word <laughs> of the day.
1: It's good. Um, as you were sharing, you know, what these people were experiencing and the ways that you try to meet them and kind of humanize the experience, you know, it. I got this sense that so many of them probably feel well my house disappeared who am I am I going to disappear am I going to fall through the cracks not physically disappear but is the stability that I had taken for granted before is it all you know when the shelter closes Am I going to be on the street? Yeah. Am I going to be able to afford anything? You know, what if the insurance company fucks me over or yeah. or takes too long? That's those are the things as I imagine myself in that situation, um, because I imagine most of us the feeling of I'm in pain and nobody sees it, or they see it and they don't care, or they underestimate it. Mm-hmm. That to me is a terrifying feeling is is that something that when you reach out to them there that you see or you're kind of keep it in mind that this person wants to be acknowledged and and validated definitely
2: i i think uh, you also see that a lot more with um like disaster assistance centers right which is set up has like fema it has like every single county agency state agency out there um
1: so they can do nothing in person i know you're not allowed to laugh at that nick you know the public sector does some (laughs) damn good work (laughs) there are some fantastic people but governments are governments bureaucracies are bureaucracies <clears throat> we all have our opinions. We all have our opinions. You are so diplomatic. There's some. Go fuck yourself. So go ahead.
2: There. There. I've. You know, my experience. I think there's good people everywhere. You know, there's shitty plumbers. Yes. To your point. Um, and i I've, I've come across a lot of good people. Um, so I feel fortunate in that. And definitely, you know, I think it was nice. So going back to your question about people coming in, I think one of the things, the shelter was the first, I don't know, week, 10 days, whatever. After that point, then people kind of move on. There's other opportunities that are afforded to people. Um, But then you have these uh, disaster assistance centers, which are set up by um, state or county people. And um, I think... In my mind, you know, this is some distance from the event now, right? And so, I think things, in general, after an event, kind of start to settle in, right? Maybe there's not so much attention. Maybe not. There's not so many calls coming in, um, and I, I would imagine, I would guess, that people start having some of these thoughts that you're talking about. Really, um, the, the questioning, the identity, and and who am I, and and uh, yeah, what do I have forgotten. left? Yeah. Have am I, yeah, the aloneness, the invisibility, um, forgotten. I think, I I think, um, I think that's accurate. So, you know, obviously, when uh, you have a giant sign behind you that says County Mental Health, pretty much nobody wants to talk to you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's all these kind of images to the psych wards or whatever else it might be. So I just tried to be respectful as people would kind of pass through, just saying hello. Someone came up to the table, trying to, you know, be friendly, have a little charisma, make make some jokes yeah. um, here, here and there, be and, human.
1: And did your was there a sign that said County Mental Health
2: behind you? Yeah. Oh, okay. So people knew yeah. I wa- who I was, and when I was there, they know who other staff is there. There's crisis <laughs> counseling behind us too, if we're needed. Just really kind of checking in with some of the agencies that um, are doing the work that's going to revisit some of the details, whether it's the um, SBA. I think that's the Small Business Administration or FEMA as people telling
1: their stories um, about loss. And and so did anybody approach you and say, listen, I I need, you know, a shoulder to lean on or I just need to talk or was it? They did it, I think, more indirectly. So you'd be buzzing around, you know, exactly. can I get you a cup of coffee? Yeah. How, how are you doing? Exactly. And And how was that usually met?
2: I think positively. You know, you could tell when somebody really wasn't um able to be connected with. Yeah. But still that again, you know, it didn't stop me from at least acknowledging them, saying hello. Yeah.
1: I bet there were a lot of people too that had tremendous anxiety about their pets being separated from their pets. I would I can't imagine. I mean, children, I understand, but to be separated from a (laughs) pet—priority. Was was that something that you that you saw there? Because I don't imagine pets were allowed in the shelter, were they? Um,
2: it's been a little bit, but I I believe there were just gorillas.
1: Gorillas were allowed, but.
2: Yeah, just, you know, th- I think there were cages. I mean, cause you have to factor this stuff in. I mean, yeah. loads of people have like, um, emotional support animals or they have mm-hmm. animals that they're with. Um, so I mean, you, you got to factor this in. So I, I recall, I think there was the, uh, room for that. I think there was mm-hmm. space for that. I think there were opportunities for that. There was a, from what I heard, and again, a lot of this stuff is just kind of a uh, rumor, mm-hmm. you don't really know, but um there's so much support and love and uh, donations from the community, you know, fi- I've heard like- People fi- were
1: taking other uh, pe- people's animals and, and housing them while those people got on their feet. That's another thing I heard is tons of people were saying, your dog can stay with me, you know, until- it's amazing. You get on your feet. I mean, that's that's beautiful. Definitely. If I, I'm picturing if I was in that shelter, all I would want to do would be f- to find the cutest dog and curl up in a corner and just be face-to-face with that dog.
2: Fetal position. And, yeah, in,
1: totally. until I got a place to stay totally. <laughs> or until I was hungry.
2: <laughs> I think I would do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's such, such tragedy. I mean, you see some of the photos. You see some of the... Even just, I drove up there shortly after the, the fires cleared just to see if I wanted to try to grab a surf and to see what it looked like. And, you know, Leo Carrillo, um, I mean, it was just the entire county um, or the state park right there was just devastated. Really, I mean, you saw stuff all the way to the other side of PCH, like just these... Flames, scorched bushes, and,
1: uh, and that for our listeners, the PCH is the Pacific Coast Highway, which is uh, Highway One, which runs all uh, along the California coast. And it's kind of, you know, when you when you see a TV show or a movie where somebody's, you know, driving around a cliff and you can see the ocean, that's the that's the PCH. Incredibly scenic, but also kind of a dangerous, expensive place. To live, and I would imagine that there's a lot of people that don't have compassion for the the wealthy people. In not everybody is wealthy in Malibu, but the majority of people there are are wealthy, and uh, there's probably stereotypes that people have in their mind of, you know, fuck these people. Um, they'll get reimbursed, and you know, but people are people. It doesn't matter how many rooms your, your house has, you're still a person in whatever room you're sitting in.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we all hurt. Yeah,
1: we all hurt. Um, anything else that, that struck you or you recall from?
2: Um, no, I mean, I, I think, uh, I was just very grateful to be in that position. It was was an, an honor, uh, you know obviously, I'm not in the military or anything, but you know or police force, but it's always an honor to serve i think it's it's really something that I pride myself in It's a passion of mine, um, and I'm grateful for that opportunity
1: well, it to me is so much more pressing than any conflict we have overseas because mental health in this country is harming more people and destroying more lives than I think probably all the wars we've ever been in com- combined. Um, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it seems like you can't go a day without hearing something in the news um, where somebody was probably failed uh, in terms of getting help or they refused help or there's just a lack of education about it, I think of all the vets that are returning from overseas and what a rough, rough road they have ahead of them. Um before. Boy, did I bring that down. <laughs> well, <laughs> Why don't I mean, you and I just play cello <laughs> and let each <laughs> let yourself out? <laughs> I take this closet, you take that yeah. one. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's <laughs> I
2: mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, this stuff is—it's real talk. It's real life. It's—it uh, deeply impacts a lot of people. I mean, I, I spent a little. I was a um, intern over at the uh, Veterans Affairs. Uh, I worked with vets for a long time. When I got straight out of my um, master's program, I went into a program working with vets. Um,
1: so I have a lot of respect for that. A lot of similarities. Share, share about your time there and some things that that stuck with you.
2: Um you know I I think to me I guess my frame is still kind of within that um physical prowess tolerance of pain like I I see a lot of things through that through that fra- frame for both genders really mm-hmm. all gender identities if you will just on how it takes a toll for all of us um and I think you know whether you're talking about I've worked alongside police um officers I've worked alongside um uh, Firefighters, um, an ambulance response, um, just all of, uh, like I've worked with athletes. A lot, a lot of these people just have this um, ideology that uh, is very helpful. It, it helps you to be a peak performer. It helps you to stay strong. Um, but when there are challenges, when there are, a, there's a natural humanistic need to enter a place of vulnerability or support. Um, it just makes it really hard to do that. Mm-hmm. And so when I was working with veterans, I saw that firsthand. Um, I was working with a lot of co-occurring substance abuse history. And, uh, um, well, I think I worked with, I, I've always worked with a lot of people that have a history of, of living on the streets in some form. Mm-hmm. Um, some for decades, um, you know and and you just it just takes time it's a
1: grind it just uh work working with them is a grind
2: no, no that's a okay. good clarification question yeah. um i think just helping people to support themselves and to try to carve out a healthier lifestyle of um consistency contentment takes a lot of discipline it takes a lot of um trust it takes a lot of you know, self-compassion to be able to kind of emerge from that position. Mm -hmm. So it can happen really slow. Um, So just being present, you know, through the ups and downs, sitting alongside of them through some of these difficulties of going to appointments or going to make these transitions. Um, You know, I always think about this guy who was on the street for a long time, history of, uh, like, being a veteran in in Vietnam, and uh, he would say I had kill counts of you know over four hundred like a helicopter um, shooter, if you will I don't know what that mOS is, but um he he just spent his life you know just trauma after trauma right and then he goes and you get recruited into the military and then you experience more trauma you come out and you still have this like you know, identity challenge, you still have things that are coming and going when it comes to relationships, whatever it might be. And, um, you know, it just, it takes a lot of substance abuse and it just takes a long time to, to feel that there's trust for, um, in, in finding a different path forward. And I would say, um, the thing that it does happen, I think it happens in the majority of the cases that, that the teams that I've been working on, um, you know, like 60, 70%, there's, there's momentum there, there's change, there's linkages to services. Um, but it just takes time, it's a grind, it's um, it's hard
1: work, there's no easy way forward. And I would assume that there has to be a willingness on that person's part to change.
2: Well, so, so some of the people that, um, in my, my current role, um, some of the people I would say a lot of the people we're getting referrals from other programs, other teams that are struggling to be able to engage and link these uh, these individuals to services. So, in, in my current role, I would say the majority of the people are are do not see a, um, a need for mental health. Right? There's a lot of uh, concurrent um, substance abuse. There's a lot of
1: medical challenges. So, they're kind of self medicating their their trauma.
2: Yeah. What, whatever whatever they're going through. um, I would say that a lot of yeah, whether it's the numbness, desire for numbness, detachment, Mm -hmm. um, even feelings of boredom. I think these things are very common reasons for using. Um, And when you're confronted with that, you know, it's sometimes it's a lot easier just to numb out, just to
1: withdraw. I I hear that a lot. um, The people that return from combat is it's such a high, as much horror as there is, you're so present and there's such a bond between you and your fellow soldiers that you miss that you don't want to see the horror again but you want to feel that alive again and everything else just feels like you're wading through just gray just gray just gray and that has to be a i know what it's like from depression to feel that gray, I can't imagine what that is like. If then you throw you know, horror in, and oh. guilt, and and all that other, and survivor guilt, and all that other stuff on top of that, were you able to make any headway with uh, that guy that had the four yeah. hundred person yeah. kill count? Can you can you talk about that as uh, freely as you're comfortable? Yeah, from from what I remember,
2: it's been it's been a little bit um but from what I remember So he didn't
1: mean that much to you. <laughs> you really let me down, dude. Uh, are you my superego? <laughs> um
2: Yeah, it's been a little bit, but from what I can remember um just a very beautiful soul, just very uh, vibrant, uh, a lot of charisma, a lot of stories, a lot of um discussion um yeah, I think I think I was working with him for maybe like six or seven months. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes with some of the agencies that we work with, they see people in a certain way, um, and so part of our role is to help reframe uh, the way that they they see them. And so through our efforts, we were able to to work with uh, the Veterans Affairs to to be able to get them linked up to a service connected pension, um, get them housed through their HUD VASH program. Uh, and, uh, you know, shortly after that process, he passed away. And, um, I mean, I think I think that's what I've come to appreciate is I think that's part of the thing, right? It's like when people are living on the streets, when they're living that, you know, go, go, go lifestyle, their um, nervous system is just constantly kicking, constantly going. And then sometimes when they get housed, it's kind of like this, relief, right? So it's the first mm-hmm. time they have, uh, you know, a real, a, a safe place to be, you know, they can kind of relax, they can kind mm-hmm. of go. And so, you know, in some of the cases, um, that I've experienced like that, that happens sometimes the healthcare stuff flares up, um, just cause they've been on such, you know,
1: adrenaline, um, for so long. It stops. And all of a sudden the stuff that was getting pushed down with the sensory overload kind of comes to the to the surface yeah what drew you to social work because you clearly care a lot about it and it's not something that you take could take or leave as a as a profession um, I'm always curious about what that somebody's background is that that brings them into that and what they feel inside when they're working with someone and you can see the progress they're making
2: good yeah good questions um i i changed careers over a preference i have a history uh i worked about a decade in entertainment marketing and i
1: probably could still be doing that in my life um it's such an important business nick i'm a little disappointed that you turned your back on it Sorry. for the glory of social work <laughs>
2: right so I found myself in different environments that were not necessarily conducive to to my personal growth. And <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: my God, is there a bigger understatement than that? Yeah, the entertainment the lines. marketing wasn't conducive to my personal <laughs> growth. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been exaggerating to call it soul crushing. <laughs>
2: Sometimes I throw these out, these things out, and I'm not sure they're going to get a laugh. But yeah. I think I have a very playful spirit, so yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed at that. Yeah, that makes me feel good.
1: Yeah. Uh, go ahead.
2: Uh, and so there's a there's a point where I got um, at a, a non-profit um, production company where there was like a kind of a mutual layoff. Uh, I did an employee review very honestly and uh, was trying to acknowledge some of the challenges that I experienced and and they looked at my employee review and they said, we agree with everything that you just said, except it's you, not us. So at that point I, th- I thought, you know, I'd always had interest in being like a therapist or something along those lines and never really pursued them just because uh, when, when I grew up, that wasn't really something that you pursue. It was much more business um, than anything else. And so I started volunteering at DD uh, Hirsch's suicide prevention hotline, mm-hmm. as well as the West Los Angeles veteran affairs. And just fell in love with the work. Um, and you were how old at that point? you're 37 now. I am yeah. Uh, I was it was 2009 and I'm yeah, so like about ten years ago, so 27, 28. Had you ever lost someone to uh, suicide? Um, so so my mother had always had a lot of um, suicidal expression um, growing up from a very young age. And uh, definitely I had some friends as I grew up that had similar expressions and attempts. Um, I I came to find out, but uh, I'd never lost until I went to the Suicide Prevention Hotline. And uh, I I was able to meet a lot of wonderful people there. And one of them was um, kind of a mentor, friend, um, as well as fellow musician. I play the drums and he uh, was a multi-instrumentalist, just a Amazing, brilliant soul. Um, And he was also just incredible when it came to risk assessment. Um, You know, being on the, he was uh, one of the supervisors there. So he would take the late night calls with people and just did such a wonderful job. And through the course of that relationship, and then he continued um, to go back and try to get his master's. He ended up um, killing himself. um, uh, St. Patrick's Day. And um, yeah, that was a, that was a really big loss, you know. I've, I'm, I've even now it was five six years ago, and even now talking about it, I'm really conflicted because he was someone who was so intelligent, knew the impact it would have um, on those who were left behind, survivors. Um, and he he still made that choice, right? So there's a lot of you know, confusion, uncertainty, resentment, um, but but most of all, sadness. I think just that, you know, that was one person that just impacted so many lives. Uh, at his funeral, I remember just how many people went up and spoke, and were just so deeply impacted by his presence and and by his gifts.
1: And do you think the sensitivity? that made him so valuable to so many people was the very thing that made it so unbearable for him to live in this world?
2: I I don't think that's a stretch. I I think, you know, there's a lot of research that talks about intelligence being kind of a double-edged sword. And um, especially when you have that vulnerability, right? When you're able to kind of have that empathy and, and to be able to feel other people's pain, it really requires like a depth within yourself as well, right? To be able to have, the reserve to be able to tolerate someone else's experience and what they're going through. So I, I think there's a lot of truth to that.
1: I think it also, when, when somebody who is so aware of the ripples that decision will have chooses to do that, I always think that that just speaks to the amount of pain that they were in not that they didn't care or they were selfish yeah. or whatever i just think they just they just couldn't bear the, the the pain anymore and i um i don't think i've ever seen or read about somebody taking their life where i haven't felt like i understood what that person might have been up against. Not to the degree that they did, but in terms of feeling surrounded by the darkness and like it's never going to end. And and it's just, it's a, um, it's, you know, in the moment it feels 900 feet tall. And I, it bothers me when people say, you know, that was selfish for you to do that. That's, I say this a lot on the podcast, but that to me is like, you know, calling the the people that jumped from the top of the building in nine eleven that was burning, calling them selfish for not hanging in there. Um, now, that's powerful. You know, you could say that those people were literally on fire. Um, but, uh, I don't know. That's just, that, that's just my, my two cents. Um,
2: no, and in my, I think in my clearer moments, you know, I, I'm able to see it that way. You know, just in talking, that if I'm really honest about the process yeah. that I go through, I mean, we all have these thoughts, we we all have these experiences. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, just being just acknowledging that
1: yeah um, and what we feel is as you know what we feel it just it's not like there's a right or wrong you, yeah um, so what, what kind of thoughts or feelings flow through you when you're seeing the light come on in someone's eyes that that you're you're helping
2: uh, I think the first thing that came to my mind is just excitement right you, you're starting to see things kind of walk in for them a little bit you're starting to um, if they've been really down, or if they've um, felt disconnected, or if they felt stuck, whatever it might be, you you can uh, I can see them kind of taking in where they're going, where they're at, and where they're moving forward. So I, I'm definitely excited for them. I'm I'm optimistic. Uh, I think um, on the same time, you know, I don't want to put my stuff onto them, and so I think I'm kind of trying to. Acknowledge that internally and, um, also reminding myself, uh, you know, they're going to be at their own pace. They're going to do this on their own. You know, my role isn't, uh, I heard, I heard it recently. I think it was pretty well said where it's like, you know, my role is really to just help them find their keys. They're the one who has to open the door and walk through.
1: No, I love that.
2: Um, so You know, just I continually try to empower the individual to make their own decisions. And so just taking that moment of kind of pause um, and just remember using that as a cue to kind of check in with them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what do you think about this? Trying to consolidate, um, trying to, to consolidate the gains, whatever those might be. Um, acknowledge even the fact that, wow, you know, like just a second ago, you were really caught up, you were really disappointed, you were really disheartened, and, and now it's like the lights are turning on, you are you look enthused, you, you seem like you're connected. What's going on? What's the difference? What shifted? What changed?
1: I, I could tell you as somebody who has been on the other side of that in therapy, it's an amazing feeling when therapists point out the gross that growths that you've made and you didn't realize it until then because how often are we in a depression because we've told ourselves some lie about being stuck or that we're never going to get better or that we're not growing and life is passing us by and then we have this moment where all of a sudden the facts on the ground are right in front of our face presented by somebody um, that has no reason to lie to us and that must be an amazing, an amazing feeling to, uh, be the one just kind of holding that mirror up to them.
2: Definitely. Yeah. And I, and I think part of, you know, depression, for example, is really kind of cutting the highs, cutting the lows, right? If, if, yeah. So you can, so it's, it's harder to see those things. So your mind is already naturally not drifting towards the gratitude, the the excitement, whatever it might be. And so really kind of shine that light, um, and just reminding them of, of progress can be a, a really important step. And um, having being proud and being grateful and, and being maybe a little bit more compassionate to ourselves, uh, especially when those harsh negative voices kind of chime in, those yeah. thoughts really try to cut us down. We, we're able to kind of detach a little bit from them and reframe them in a healthier way and try to move forward.
1: Do you feel? that being a social worker has increased your self-esteem? Good question.
2: Um, for me, I think the best way that I can frame that is that it's helped me to establish more consistency in my life. Um, more contentment, which are really, you know, critical, critical things for me. I think in throughout my history, I've had a lot of, um, I was always drawn to excitement and uh, adrenaline types of things. Not like my job doesn't have that in it, right. but it definitely, uh, you know, I can't work overtime without approval from the senior vice president. So, you know, we don't want to hurt our taxpayers uh, right. any more than we are. So, <clears throat> um, I'm very grateful for that foundation, for that stability. Uh, I work alongside some really wonderful people. So I, I think, um, that are also, but yeah, that are also reminding us to take care of ourselves because mm. the the if you're in the industry, if you're you're doing mental health, you're going to burn out. Yeah. So how are you going to take care of yourself? Because just like any relationship, you got to invest in yourself first before you try to reach out and care for another. Otherwise, it just gets all out of whack. Uh,
1: there are two other things that we. Originally, we're going to talk about that. I think we'll, we'll do another episode. Uh, have you back, uh, if you're, if you're up for it. Uh, and we talk about your relationship with, uh, your mom and the ups and downs of that and her battles with, uh, addiction and you now being a parent and navigating how much she's in their life and Hmm. all of that stuff. Um, and the severe neck injury that you had when you were a teenager?
2: Yeah, seventeen years old. I yeah. broke uh I had a blowout fracture on the left side of my vertebrae uh at C six. There's seven uh vertebrae in your in your clav- clavicle section, cervical yeah. section of yeah. your spine. Um and it was a blowout at C six on the left side, and then C seven five four And three were fractured. So five out of seven of my vertebrae were blown out and or fractured um, at 17 years old. And you were surfing? Or what was it? Skimboarding. Skimboarding. Yeah. So so like when the water's receding, you take that uh, disc-shaped piece of fiberglass, throw it on, run as fast as you can, jump on it.
1: Yeah. And... You were a high-level skater or surfboarder, or what? What were you? Oh gosh!
2: Compared to some of the people that I know, I definitely wasn't high-level. Oh, okay. But I, I've always been an avid surfer, and okay, um, I used to skate, not so much anymore.
1: Okay. For some reason, I, I in my memory, I uh, had you being like a, you know, semi-pro surfer or something. In, I, in my memory, I idealize <laughs> myself too. Nick, the posters I have of you over my bed <laughs> with your oiled chest. On your skim board. <laughs> you There's always trophies around it. Maybe I magic marker those in. <laughs> but uh I think that'll be uh some some great stuff to talk about. But um I love chatting with you, man. Thanks, thanks for um being so supportive of the show. I'm always flattered when anybody from the mental health community is a is a listener to the show, and and I'm so glad uh, our paths connected and we can talk about this. Me too.
2: I'm honored to be here, and I I really cannot uh, commend you enough for your efforts and what you're doing
1: for so many. Now you're just being a dick. (laughs) Check. (laughs) Really, really enjoyed talking to him. Uh, Let's get right to some surveys. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a trans man who uh, calls himself S.M., and he only partially filled it out, uh, but I'm going to read what he did fill out. He to the page, identifies as pansexual. Uh, he's 24, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. i uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, he writes, I had just come out as transgender during the spring semester and was back on campus in the fall. One of my classmates sent me a text asking for help on an assignment. I invited her over because I was working in the dorm and couldn't leave. She came over and pretty quickly I realized she didn't really want to do homework at all. She went on and on about her boyfriend and how he just didn't understand her. Then she said I would be the perfect mix because I would understand women in a way real guys couldn't. That was the first red flag. I was actually working on an assignment, she kept tr- an assignment, and she kept trying to distract me, saying very sexual things and touching herself a lot. I kind of laughed and asked if she was going to do her homework. That's when she told me she was already done. Go figure. Next she asked if I thought she was attractive. Knowing she was feeling insecure after everything she had told me about her boyfriend, I told her she was an attractive person but that I wasn't interested in any kind of relationship and just wanted to do my homework. That response clearly wasn't enough because she started crying and saying, if you were a real man, you would fuck me. I didn't respond. She came over to my desk and started touching me. I asked her to stop and she said it was okay, that she didn't think I was gross or bad. Her words not mine. I pulled away and she started crying. Next thing I knew she had taken some pills from her purse. Xanax and a pretty high dose too. She was crying, shaking and saying she didn't feel well. Asked if I would just hold her. I was so overwhelmed and uncomfortable but I did it anyway. She put her hand up my shirt then down my pants saying she knew how to make me want her. I just cried. She didn't stop. She put her hand up her shirt making my hand she put my hand up her shirt making my hand grope her body. I felt so ashamed and disgusting. It didn't go much further but I was so upset we were on a small campus and had a lot of classes together. Every time I saw her after that I would hear my heart beat in my ears and felt like I was going to get sick. I still have to see her sometimes at professional events. I still feel uncomfortable and disgusting. Wow, that is intense. He has never been physically abused um, and also uh, another event uh, where he is not sure. He writes, My mother was incredibly controlling and would cycle between incredibly angry and inexplicably happy. I suspect bipolar disorder, but what do I know? I don't really think this counts as as emotional abuse, but her instability was constant. One day at 3 a.m., uh, she swung open my bedroom door, turned on the lights, and started yelling about me drinking her last Coke. I hadn't, but she was convinced. Now, it, that wouldn't be abuse if it was Pepsi, but drinking someone's last Coke, that that is actually you abusing her. Of course, I'm kidding. Um, she started yelling about me drinking her last Coke. I hadn't, but she was convinced I did. It was a school night, but that didn't matter. She was out of soda. I was 15 and had my driver's permit. She told me to go to the 7-Eleven and get her a Coke, yelling about how I didn't care about her and thought she was a horrible mother, but she, quote, has to teach me respect. That is absolutely emotional abuse. She would only do things like this when my dad was out of town. I had to manage our family's finances because she wouldn't pay the bills even when we had enough money. My sister and I were constantly late to school because we couldn't wake her up to take us, and she wouldn't let us take the bus because she thought we would be kidnapped We would be standing outside the school for hours after we got out, waiting for her to pick us up. As an adult, I told my family I was transgender and going to transition, and she told me I was being selfish and didn't care that she wanted grandchildren. Wow, what a fucking narcissist your mother is. This stuff is so clearly emotional abuse. She didn't want me to change my name because she picked it and was, quote, attached to it. I wasn't allowed to tell family members either, especially her dad, because he would probably stop talking to her. Sometimes as a kid, I would ask my dad to stay home or tell her that she was really mean when he wasn't there. He said he knew, but that I just needed to listen to her and not upset her so much. His mother used to bite him as a child, so in his mind, as long as I wasn't bleeding, I was fine." Any positive experiences with the abusers. I learned to recognize the roller coaster of emotions my mom would experience, and during her high moments, we would have really good conversations. When she finally came around to me, uh, being trans, She helped pick out my new name and even helped schedule my first gender-affirming surgery. I love her very much, and she has often been someone I could turn to for love and support. I just had to try and time it right to get her when she was in a good mood. That is such a mindfuck to be walking on eggshells with somebody and only get the, the scraps sometimes. And it makes it so hard to distance yourself or cut them out of your life you know when the toxicity is mixed in with the occasional validation and it's not you know it's this isn't about defining them as a good or a bad person it's about protecting ourselves and self care because emotional growth is so tied to protecting ourselves it's almost impossible to emotionally grow while still allowing ourselves to be doormats. Darkest Thoughts I often can't get off unless I think of someone being incredibly mean and degrading, saying the worst things I feel about myself while they fuck me really hard. Usually in these fantasies, I'm slightly unwilling and or tied up. Darkest Secrets. As a kid, I would put a sock in my underwear and squeeze my legs together rhythmically until I would fall asleep. I was so ashamed that I would throw those socks away secretly when I took the trash to the curb. I thought it meant I would grow up to be a pedophile. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I, I really hope that you can get to a place where, where you can begin to to protect yourself and accept Accept yourself, because you know, from what you have described, you're a really sensitive person that's having trouble accepting yourself as you are, and uh, from what you've described, you you really sound like a sweet human being. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Bug. She writes, at my high school we had to take swim classes in PE in order to graduate, but the week we had to take them I had my period. So I skipped as many lessons as I could until my teacher threatened to fail me, forcing me to swim while I was on my period. My friend suggested that I use one of their tampons because all I had were pads, but I had never used a tampon before so I didn't really know how they worked. I only got the tampon in halfway and had to swim the entire class feeling so uncomfortable. Then when I got out of the pool, I noticed the tampon had expanded and it looked like I had a very small penis. I've never used a tampon again. That's like something out of a movie. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Man, some of the awful moments that you guys submit are just they just make my day. This is, uh, and the other surveys as well, but there's something about something that's bittersweet or darkly funny that just hits me in my wheelhouse. And by wheelhouse, I mean my anus. This is from the love survey filled out by a non-binary person who calls themselves the flower power ranger. And they write, I've been learning to grill, sitting outside watching my dog play on the hill behind my house, smelling the food as it cooks and drinking whiskey while listening to 70s music has been my greatest source of peace and fulfillment lately that does sound fun man that does sound fun i think i'm gonna start drinking again i think i've been sober long enough is that a valid excuse that i read a really compelling love survey and that's why i fell off the wagon uh, this is from the Love Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself TT And she writes, I love waking up in the morning and feeling my dog's feet tucked under me as if I'm keeping her little toes warm. I call her my four-legged BFF and love having her by my side through thick and thin. I took a nap. Thank you for that. I took a nap with Gracie yesterday and you know, sometimes you'll if you're a dog lover, you'll be napping with your dog and you'll get them in a, a, a position that just feels so emotionally awesome that you're just praying they don't hear a sound or move. Or And I always found myself wishing that I had a camera on my ceiling so I could take a picture of it. But I had her, I was laying on my side, both of our heads were on the pillow, her back was to my... To my chest and I had my arm wrapped around her like she was a pillow <laughs> and it was just it was so satisfying and it, so many times I will just talk to her you know like we're roommates like we're equal roommates and and that I'm so glad that she decided to stay with me <laughs> and it just makes me laugh it just makes me laugh this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself perfectly imperfect. She identifies as straight, although she uh, writes, "I have slept with both men and women." Uh, she is in her, and by although I mean that that, and in addition, she, she not as if uh, oh, if you sleep with uh, somebody of the opposite gender, that disqualifies you from being straight. I'm, that's not what I meant. She's in her thirties, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. She writes, I was a 4.0 GPA psychology major in undergrad, in undergrad and, a, and very close to my professors, specifically my advisor, Dr. A. Dr. A got me shit-faced towards the end of one semester and that night ended up with me naked on his desk with his head between my legs. That's all that happened, but it was so strange after that. At the end of the school year, I got the award for most outstanding student of the year in the psychology department. My dad sat in the front row of that ceremony with tears in his eyes because he was so proud of his daughter. Dr. A is the one that nominated me and presented the award to me on stage during the ceremony. It was awful, but I always felt pretty responsible since I never said no at the time. I still don't know if I was really outstanding or not. Thank you for sharing that. And when when somebody leverages their power or their position of authority over somebody else, that is abuse. And whether you said no or not, that is a violation. She's never been physically abused. Um, she has been emotionally abused, but she didn't specify darkest thoughts. I'm afraid that I have spent so much time running away from myself in the forms of actually moving or leaving friends and loved ones that it's too late to actually find true happiness or love. I'm afraid if I find it, I will ruin it and keep running away. Darkest Secrets Internet-stalking strangers, specifically ex-girlfriends of either current or ex-boyfriends. It's a terrible habit and so embarrassing. I'm trying to get better, but it still hooks me a couple of times a week. I don't think it is necessarily jealousy. I feel more curious. The truth is, I have seen all these pictures and feel like I know these women when in fact we will probably never meet. And if we did, they would most likely think I was a psychopath. I want to know everything about the women of the men I've been with or are currently with, if that makes sense. I think that's a really human quality. Um Just my opinion, uh when we're uh, a, a human choice to make when we're in that place where we're not getting validation and we feel kind of invisible and we want a sense of who we are so we start comparing ourselves to other people and very rarely does that feel satisfying you know there's a phrase in recovery called compare and despair and facebook boy you know that is certainly fertile ground if you want to compare and despair I think most of them are beautiful and I just want to know them. Sometimes I think about the women having sex with my boyfriend because I know it happened in the past. Past. I don't get sexually excited necessarily. I just like to think about it. I am not sure if this is a normal thing or not. Um, I, I know that it is common. Um, my guess would be that it's, it, that it's not healthy, that it's not kind to ourselves going out on a limb there? Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being dominated and controlled mostly. I have a job in which I make all the decisions for everyone, and sometimes I just fantasize about getting my ass beat. If I do watch porn, it is typically gangbangs. I don't necessarily want to participate in them, but they turn me on the most. I feel shameful about that. And you should not because that is such a common thing especially for people in positions of authority. So often their fantasies are of just letting go and turning their power over to somebody else. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my dad that he is a pretty shitty father. It would be nice to hear from him other than a stupid text message each month. i tell him that if I have kids... I cannot wait to do a better job than he did. I think you wait until his birthday and you text him that. What, if anything, do you wish for? The strength to stay sober. I am on my 12th day. Congratulations. That is huge. You know, as somebody who has battled addiction, um, 24 hours can be a miracle when that obsession is there. I wish to find more connection. I moved to Iowa with my significant other a couple of months ago, and it's very lonely. I wish for people I can connect with and be vulnerable with and laugh, because we are fucking crazy. Yeah, I think a support group for sobriety would be an awesome choice, because it would help with both those things. You'd be uh, doing the old uh, kill two birds with one stone, unless you're vegan. Have you shared these things with others? I have a few people in my life I can share these thoughts with. One in particular is a woman I've known since I was five years old. She lives in North Carolina, and we have two-hour, quote, therapy sessions over the phone, usually once a month. I love her so much. We fight the same demons, and I always feel so much better after we talk, and I know she does, too. That's so awesome. It is such a blessing to have people like that in our lives. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel so good writing these things down. Vulnerable, but good. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. This is from the Love Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Fried Chicken Is Self-Care. and She writes, I love that I've decided not to celebrate my birthday organizing an event, picking a restaurant that lines up with my friend's dietary needs, and finding something to entertain them. Instead, I will turn my phone on silent, buy myself a bath bomb and a bucket of fried chicken, and I will graciously gorge myself in the tub because it's one day for me, and I'm going to do What I want, not what's expected of me. I love it. I love it. It's probably too late, but uh, I would love a picture, not of you during it, but of the bathtub after it. Just the ring of chicken grease. Or maybe you go barbecue. Nice ring of Nashville-style sauce around the... And then you with just a big ring of uh, barbecue sauce around around your mouth, big smile, hair up in a towel. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Fun is Boring. He is straight in his 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused, uh, never been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, Darkest thoughts, I have a recurring fantasy of lighting myself on fire in front of Trump Tower. Buddhist monk style. I'm fascinated by the question of whether I'd be able to keep it together or whether I'd die flailing and screaming. I love too that the the description as it as fighting the horror of burning as keeping it together. As if there's a proper way to react. being on fire Uh, i feel furious towards those who are blithely happy and effortlessly social though i could never do anything violent i kind of see where those mass shooters are coming from boy the first part of that i so i so agree with i so agree with i look at people that effortlessly laugh and are just loose and i just think what is that like what is that like Uh, I don't think I'm going to live much past 30 without killing myself. Oh, buddy, I hope you reach out for help, man. I really do. Darkest thoughts. I'm almost entirely living off of my parents' money. I'm 26. For a couple of years after college, I supported myself, but every job I had made me miserable, and now I feel like a parasite. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I find coercive, rapey porn to be much more compelling than I would like it to be. That said, sometimes I just masturbate to YouTube videos of pretty women talking gently. Sharing this makes me feel small. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I had any wishes or desires for the future. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I've had four therapists over the last five years, though none of them have been particularly helpful. I've told my parents as well, and they've been compassionate and supportive. How do you feel after writing these things down? Still as gray and hollow as when I started. Any comments to make the podcast better? Raise Herbert from the dead. Oh my God, if I could raise Herbert from the dead. (laughs) The first thing he would want would be a treat. uh when you when you write uh how do you feel after writing these things down still as gray and hollow as when I started you know those are those are words that are so often used to describe depression, and I wonder if you've never been to a psychiatrist if that might be something worth checking out you've been to to therapy, but you know obviously therapists can't prescribe medication and um you know i'm i'm not saying medication is for everybody, but for me. Uh, it was one of the last houses on the block and one of the only things that really can get me out of bed and functioning. But sending you some love, buddy. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Bonnie and, Na- and NJ. And she writes, I was sitting in the waiting room of my psychiatrist. They play waiting music, uh, waiting room music, you know, easy listening. On this particular day, There were a lot of people in there with me, not usually the case, and a lot of sad faces. Moms with their kid looking like they're about to cry, long face of an elderly man in the back, an anxious ridden me. All of a sudden, I listened to the song playing. Go ahead and jump, jump, might as well jump. My mouth dropped. I looked around, but no one else seemed to notice what I did. I was about to have that inappropriate laughter moment, but held it in. David Lee Roth took my anxiety down a notch that day for sure. Oh, so fantastic! There were uh, somebody filled out an awfulsome survey one time where they were having a deathbed vigil for I think it was their grandfather, and just as he was taking his last breaths, somebody's phone rang, and their ringtone was the Blue Oyster Cult song "Don't Fear the Reaper." this is a love survey filled up by a woman who calls herself jinx and she writes i love writing creating stepping into a world entirely my own i love the rain i have so many good memories from standing in the rain during eating disorder treatment i love when my cat bumps his head against me i love cooking i love dancing to taylor swift in the kitchen I love the feeling when you just finish getting ready for a dance or a formal event and are in a dress, makeup done, and for a split second you feel radiant. Thank you for that. And then finally, this is. Oh no, we got two. Three! Look at me jumping the gun. This is from the love survey filled out by a trans woman who calls herself a cameo, and she writes, I love how silly people can be. The complete disregard for social norms because of a burst of pure happiness or from a complete lack of caring in the best way possible. I find it's usually the people with the hardest lives that can be extra silly. I think it's because they're just so tired of the sadness that they force happiness into the world. If it's a coping mechanism, it's the best one I know. That's such a good one. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself. My breath's cat smells like breath food. She writes, During one of my worst suicidal periods, it got bad enough that I picked out a freeway overpass that I planned to jump from. I would go there every few days, standing by the railing and looking down onto the freeway and the speeding cars. I ultimately did not jump, thank God, largely because I worried it wasn't high enough and I wouldn't die just to end up paralyzed. Of course, it didn't occur to my depressed brain to find a different spot to jump. Years later, with my current therapist, we were talking about how to handle patients who kill themselves. I was new in the mental health field myself. She told me about a patient of hers who attempted suicide, but he didn't die. He spent months in the hospital and years in physical therapy. Turns out, he jumped from that very same overpass. I didn't tell her. Wow. Wow. And then finally... This is from the Love's survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Maria, and she writes, I love autumn on the East Coast. It's the time of year when I feel that all of my senses are heightened, or maybe I'm just more sensitive. I want a happy cry whenever I feel the crisp, sunny air and the odd silence of the wind and the leaves scattering across the pavement. No more bugs or sweating. Everything feels balanced, and I am brought back to Earth jazz tunes seem to soundtrack every sunny or rainy day of autumn and the world feels like illustrations in a children's book god i love that last sentence It's so amazing the world feels like illustrations in a children's book fuck it's like poetry thank you so much for that and uh i hope you guys got something out of this week's episode, um, and if you're out there and you're struggling, uh, you're not alone. You're not alone. It so feels like it when you're in that place. It feels like it's never gonna get better and we can't envision any way out, but the world and the universe is so large and complex that going to that place in our head where we think, we know every option and how the universe is expanding. is It's such a dead end to sit with that thought and convince ourselves that because we can never really understand the possibilities of positive change, especially when we're in that, that headspace. And um, just remember that you're not alone. And thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know weird beautifully, fucked up, I know weird beautifully, up weird beautifully fucked up in some weird way.